Hi, I'm Dan Pramack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today's Thursday, July 9th. The Dow finished down, temperatures in many parts of the country are up, and we're focused on Joe Biden's economic plan. Former Vice President Biden today returned to his hometown of Scranton, Pennsylvania, to give his first major speech on economic policy since becoming the Democratic Party's presumptive presidential nominee. This is the United States of America. There is not a single thing, nothing, not a single thing we've ever failed to do when we've decided to do it together. That's what this is about, doing it together. We have a great opportunity. Build back and build back better. Here are the broad strokes. Biden's plan is focused on reviving and remaking America's manufacturing and innovation sectors. This includes $400 billion over four years to increase government purchasing of U.S.-made goods and services, plus another $300 billion in new research and development spending on U.S. tech efforts, particularly for companies not based in Silicon Valley or other areas already awash in venture capital. He also reiterated some of the primary pledges to roll back some Trump corporate tax cuts, some other cuts on high earners, and to strengthen the power of unions. Why it all matters is that we are in the midst of the worst economic recession in generations, and the next president, whoever it is, will be charged with leading a turnaround, whether or not the pandemic is still with us. So we wanted to dig in today on Biden's plan with Penny Pritzker, who served with him as U.S. Commerce Secretary under President Obama. She now leads an investment firm called PSP Partners and is affiliated with the campaign. Secretary Pritzker, Vice President Biden today has talked a lot about this idea of, quote, buying American. How, from your perspective, is that different than Trump's kind of America first framing? What the vice president has put forward is a really important plan. Think about it. He's basically offering up the largest procurement infrastructure and R&D spend for the United States since World War II, recognizing that our country is in a real crisis. We not only have a crisis of a pandemic, we have an economic crisis, 18 million Americans out of work who were working just a few short months ago, and a national reckoning regarding racial inequality. What he's proposing is really something that says, we're going to buy America And we're going to spend that money on procurement, things that we're spending taxpayer money on. It's going to be used here in our country. He's focusing you on the fact we need to invest in our infrastructure. But he's also saying, I'm going to spend $300 billion on R&D to make sure we're leaders in clean energy, batteries, AI, 5G, areas that we need to lead as a country so that our economy can continue to grow and thrive. Is it bold enough? So the 400 million is over four years. And so, for example, that works out to $100 billion a year. Senator Elizabeth Warren had proposed $150 billion a year, so 50% more. What's the argument that what the vice president's proposing is bold enough? It's incredibly bold. And I also think you need to recognize this is the first of multiple rollouts. When these plans got released last night or earlier this morning, almost every news story had the line or paragraph somewhere saying the campaign has not yet explained how it's going to pay for it. Let me ask you a different version of that, which is there's obviously kind of an economic theory that some folks who are at least kind of indirectly advising the Biden campaign have said, which is we don't need to pay for it. When he says we're going to invest $700 billion, does the campaign need to say where that money's going to come from or does it not? Well, look, he's talked about reforming the tax structure, and for sure, folks like me are going to have to pay more. But we're in a crisis. I think he is making bold action. He's offering bold plans. 
real plans, plans that are executable and durable. I mean, you know, this administration promises all kinds of things and then doesn't follow through. I've watched Joe Biden. I've worked side by side with Joe Biden. When he says he's going to do something, he'll get it done. But is it reasonable for voters to say these are the economic plans he's releasing today, but none of us, Joe Biden, myself, Donald Trump, you, no one really knows what the economic situation is going to be in five months. And it's hard to imagine any plan released in July 2020 will be applicable in January 2021. Look, there's no doubt it will evolve. You're absolutely right. But I think the fundamental premise will not evolve. We have a serious problem. Goldman Sachs is projecting we're going to end the year with 9% unemployment. You know, today we're at 11% unemployment. So hopefully we do better than that by the end of the year, but that's a lot of people out of jobs. We need to take action. The second is the United States has cut R&D funding by $250 billion. We've got wood to chop. We've got to make up for lost ground. We can't lose in terms of our climate. We can't lose in terms of battery technology. We can't lose in terms of AI. We can't lose in terms of 5G. We've got to invest biotechnology. Think of how much better off we'd be if we'd been investing more in biotechnology. The plan in certain ways seems to offer some outreach to the call it the Sanders wing of the party. And there's kind of almost two plans that came out in the last 24 hours. There's the one that the vice president rolled out in Scranton today. And then there were also these task force recommendations that came out last night, which were kind of the reconciliation project. Those proposals that came out from the task forces are recommendations to the campaign. What happens to those recommendations? Because it's unusual for a campaign to release publicly recommendations to its candidate. I think that the vice president will be extremely practical. He's always been open to ideas that come from all sides of the political spectrum, left, center, and right. The campaign and the vice president himself will look at the proposals and incorporate those that align with his vision for America. But he's also, I think one of the things he's doing is he's really brought the party together. Had Joe Biden been president this year during this pandemic, do you have a sense from an economic perspective what he might have done differently since February? Well, I think the vice president would not have been focused initially on the stock market. I think he would have focused on the fact that people are losing their incomes and losing their jobs and losing their livelihoods and therefore also don't have access to health care. Remember, the vice president was in charge of the economic recovery in 2009 and 10. So he's seen not the same crisis, but another crisis. He's had to act and react to the specific situations. I think the other thing he would have done is he would put good talent around himself that was believable and that was telling the facts to the American people so that they could make wise decisions, not only for themselves personally, but if you're in a leadership position of a business or so that you can adapt to the facts on the ground, if you will. I mean, that's one of the things that we're really missing is Joe Biden will have a great team and we need a great team to clean up the mess we're in. Can I ask, do you want to be part of that team? If he asks, do you go back to D.C.? What I'm focused on right now is let's get Joe Biden in office. But if he wins and he asks, are you going to go back down south? You know, I'm not getting ahead of myself right now. What I'm doing is you know, what he's asked me to do right now. Help him out, help him with his economic policy 
and help him get elected. And that's what I'm doing right now. One final question for you, which is kind of about you, but vis-a-vis the campaign. We talked about those kind of task forces, which were, you said that, you know, the party has come together. Your day job as a private equity executive, do you have any concerns? Do you think the campaign has any concerns with you being out there as a chief surrogate on the economy for Vice President Biden, given that a lot of the kind of more left-leaning Sanders wing of the party does not take a generally kind view of private equity? Well, I'm not really a private equity person. So just as a correction, I invest our capital into businesses for the long term. So I have a little bit of a different job than what you're describing. Look, the campaign and Joe Biden wants to bring together the broadest coalition of people in this country. And there is room for the person who is the progressive leftist and the person who's the centrist and the person who is a business person to come together behind Joe Biden. So I can explain where the vice president is coming from, how he approaches problem solving, the kind of talent he will bring to the table, the kind of certainty that he will bring to this country and to our allies and our relationships around the world. So I think I can be a good spokesperson for him as it relates to a number of subjects that I have some knowledge of. Secretary Prisker, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're watching today is President Trump's tax returns after the Supreme Court ruled seven to two that Manhattan prosecutors can legally subpoena them from Deutsche Bank, which has said it will comply with the ruling. The court punted, though, on another request for Trump's tax returns that had come from House Democrats. The big question now is if any of this means voters will actually get to learn what's in these documents before heading to the polls in November. So I asked Axios White House reporter Elena Treen. No, definitely not. Both of these rulings, they're not demanding or even ruling that the president must turn over his tax returns. But what they did was give the Manhattan District Attorney's Office the ability to subpoena these documents. And so now it's going to go back to the lower courts where the president is likely to argue why he shouldn't have to do this. Congress has also asked for these documents and they didn't give them the power to subpoena just yet. I think the key here is to know that they ruled that the president does not have absolute immunity. Is Trump in part trying to just play out the clock here? The administration in the White House definitely wants to run out the clock. And this isn't going to happen really before the election, which is in their eyes a win. And people I spoke at the White House virtually said that today. But the president himself doesn't fully agree with this idea of not having absolute immunity. We're also watching Walgreens, which today released second quarter results, which reflected an interesting dichotomy when it came to drug prescriptions. On the one hand, Walgreens said it filled far fewer prescriptions than usual because a lot of people stopped visiting doctor's offices and hospitals for non-COVID ailments over the last few months. On the other hand, though, its U.S. prescription revenue went up due to ever-increasing drug prices. Finally, today we're also watching Hamilton. Literally, I spent part of my morning watching it on Disney Plus with my daughter because that's how work from home goes these days. Now, one thing we still don't know, though, is how many other people have watched it since it premiered last Friday. Disney is keeping that information under wraps, at least until its next quarterly earnings report, which is in August. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. It's my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven. Have a great national sugar cookie day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.